When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. This is Paul Bromwell, and I am pleased to be joined by the living legend, the enforcer, Arn Anderson. Arn, how are you today? Hey, Paul. Um, I am bittersweet today for obvious reasons. Understandably so, Arn. I uh, thank you very much again for joining. I'm filling in this week for Conrad, and this is going to be a very unique, very special show. Uh, As we know, over this past week, uh, the wrestling industry and specifically all of us lost someone very special in, uh, in Bobby Eaton, uh, a tremendous performer, but more so than that, everything that I've heard and you know personally, a tremendous human being. Well, Paul, not to put any pressure on you, but you know, I've took on this podcast, not having a clue what I was doing a while back. And, uh, kind of been learning as I go, made some mistakes, made a lot of mistakes. Um, But I took it with the idea that we could have some fun with it and we could accomplish some things with it and maybe take some folks' mind off their troubles, if nothing else, on, you know, at least a semi-regular basis. You and I today, not to put any pressure on you, but very seriously, are taxed and have the responsibility to explain to the world just what a wonderful, wonderful man Bobby Eaton was and will always be in my mind. So that means is. Uh, 
one of a kind, one of the best human beings that ever lived, if not the best, aside from the performer that he is. So if we can get that across today, mission accomplished. Absolutely. There's a great responsibility on our shoulders to do that today. And Arn, uh, there was no doubt in our minds talking with Conrad, talking with you, this was the right call to make. Again, uh, lots of fun going through 85 in the startup of your career. But when you're talking about a living legend that's been so impactful, uh, this is the right call to make sure we're paying tribute uh, to him. So we're going to start off from the beginning. And where I want to start is your thoughts around the team, the Midnight Express, and how that all started and where you first heard about the Midnight Express. So if it's okay with you, I'd like to start there and your first memories or your first recollection of the Midnight Express. That'll be fun, but I think we better hit something before it gets lost in the shuffle, which is ironic. And when this airs, it's Bobby Eaton's 63rd birthday. That's correct. And I think there's some irony in that. Um, but in the old days, Paul, and I know you were a baby, if not even born back in the, you know, 85 and starting there. Um, the only way you got information about other territories was wrestling magazines. Because each individual territory had a television that only aired in a couple, three states. That's why it was called a territory. And any information that you got had to be in that viewing area. So I never saw the Midnight Express until I saw them for the first time, other than wrestling magazines and reading what propaganda was put in there back in those days when they came to Jim Crockett Promotions. You know, uh, Jim Crockett Promotions, again, that's where I first became familiar with it. You mentioned uh, as a baby, I was born in 77, and you mentioned uh, this as this drops on the main feed, August 14th, 1958. Uh, so when this does drop on Saturday, he will have been 63 years old. Uh, but again, Midnight Express, Jim Crockett Promotions, that's where I recall him working with Dennis Condry and Jim Cornette as well. Uh, so he starts wrestling uh, there, working through the territories. When did you first meet the Midnight Express? What year is that? Do you remember? Yeah, it, it would be when I got to Jim Crockett, been 85 too. I did take from what I read in the wrestling magazines, and you had to know how to read between the lines, you know, in Pro Wrestling Illustrated. And they did a great job of explaining the wrestling business, but it was done in a behind-the-scenes context. They were already becoming megastars in a territory that Bill Watts liked the big guys. He was like the old WWWF. You had to be a monster to work there. You know, that was who Bill Watts liked. But here comes these two average-sized guys and Jim Cornette with a tennis racket. And I'm sure Bill Watts, before he had ever seen him perform, thought, not going to use those guys. Then apparently he saw them live or sent a spy in to see them live. And he thought, my God, what an act these guys have got going on. So if they're flourishing in his territory, Mid-South, the world is going to be their oyster pretty quickly. 
They started, uh, Bobby's career would start in NWA Mid-America in the late 70s, 76 to 80, then transitioning to Continental Wrestling Association in the early 80s from 80 to 83, even spent a little bit of a brief time in Georgia Championship Wrestling, uh, captured the National Television Championship shortly there as well. And then he would transition, worked a little bit in Mid-South Wrestling and World Class Championship Wrestling. Uh, Mid-South, again, working under Bill Watts before making that transition, as you said, over to Jim Crockett Promotions in 1985. And uh, again, that's where I'm most familiar with him as a fan of Jim Crockett Promotions. Uh, but again, working there as a tag team, would work with uh, Dennis Condry before then, partnering with uh, Sweet Stan Lane. You have to remember and think back to some of the trips and travels up and down the roads with uh, with the Midnight Express, some of the, the battles, if you will, with them as well, and their, their unbelievable matches with the Rock and Roll Express. What do you remember from some of those days in the, in the mid-'80s there? Every time you refer to your sources and toss out more information, <clears throat> I have to double back. 1976 is when Bobby started? Yes, yes, sir. For Christ's sakes. I was graduating high school in 1976. So Bobby Eaton, I started in 82. Bobby Eaton, now I'm, I'm a dinosaur. I'm a relic. I'm one of the oldest guys still active in the business. Bobby Eaton, <laughs> that would have put him being in the business six years before me. He started at age 17, Arn, and uh, for NWA Mid-America, and uh, he uh, entered his first match, and he lost to Bearcat Wright for the NWA Mid-America. As well he should. <sighs> yeah, there you he, go. He, he should have been out back at his mom's house cutting the grass or running to the grocery store, or doing something that 17-year-olds in Huntsville do. It shouldn't have been throwing hands with Bearcat Wright, for God's sakes. There you go. So there's there's one thing. You know, I didn't even know that. I knew he started young, but no wonder he was so good. Yeah. My God, he's been in – he wrestled for 100 years. He worked with guys like Leaping Lanny Poffo in 1978. He tagged with him in, uh, in NWA Mid-America as well. So – there's a lot that we, you know, that you don't know unless you look it up and do your homework about Bobby in terms of background and who he worked with. And that's just experience Yes, that you can't pay for. And you get, you know, you hear about guys like him and Terry Gordy and all these different guys that started Fit Finley. It's such a ridiculous age. Bobby Eaton starting at 17, I, I bet you by the time he turned 18 and was legal to do anything, I don't know, back in those days, I think you could buy a beer at 18 years old. You know, by the time he got to 18, he was probably already polished because, my God, did he progress from that point forward. That's for sure. Yeah. I think it was, you know, and he was also partners with Nick Goulas. He was. Son, George Goulas, correct? Yes, that's exactly right. He spent some time with him together working as a tag team as well. So, you know, once we got to uh, Jim Crockett Promotions, uh, I thought I had a pretty good grasp on the business and could assess talent and was starting to learn the business, you know, you go for a, a certain time when you first start in this business wrestling to where you're about half wrestler and about half fan. And I think that's a good thing because you want to look at what you're seeing 
and enjoy it as a fan. But when you see something that does work, you got to step into your wrestler hat and go, okay, I know why that didn't work. And maybe I would put something like that there. So when the first time I saw them, I was in full wrestler mode and they just were so crafty. They used Jimmy so well and all three were so different. You know, Dennis Condry, he was a heels heel. He would uh, bring the audience into it. He would be a guy that, you know, when he was coming down the aisle, you didn't want to reach out and slap him on the back because you just didn't know what he was capable of. If he's going to slap back. And I can assure you he would have. Yeah. Jimmy enticed everybody in the world to try to slap all three of them. That's right. Nobody better at what he did, which brings us to Bobby. What I noticed about him is every time he took a tag and stepped through those ropes, something magical happened. No wasted motion, nothing minimal, nothing that was out of place. It simply followed what was going on in the ring story-wise, and he just enhanced it. And every time he shot up, now this was pre-Luchas or pre-anybody that was coming off the top like this. You know, you had Randy Savage dropping an elbow, but I dare say, and no disrespect to Randy, but if you tell the truth, Bobby Eaton's knee off the top rope or his Alabama jam or his elbow were as good as anybody in the history of the business. If you don't believe me, go back and look at it. Watch it with a naked eye, with no preconceived uh, notions in your head. Just look at the quality. Best punch I ever saw. Incredible. And just the thought process that he had to go in and do his part at getting a match over made what Dennis did that much better, made Jimmy's job very, very easy. And those guys just clicked right away. And uh, from day one, they were something special. They have lasted the test of time. When people are still that are in the know, Paul, and I consider myself in the know, when I say they're the best tag team I ever saw, they probably were. You think about Bobby Eaton, and obviously he was not a mouthpiece. He's not going to get on the microphone and set the world on fire with promos. But to your point, Arn, he was the guy that got in the ring and was the high flyer, the impact moves. You always think about tag teams, at least I do, and you think about the one guy. Maybe it was the Rockers, and you had the Shawn Michaels who would come in and fly around the ring a little bit, do those impact moves. Bobby Eaton was kind of that guy, but he also had another dimension to his game, like you mentioned, with the punches and the technical ability. He had it all. He was well-rounded when it came into the ring. Also think about him as part of the Midnight Express involved in some of those scaffold matches with the Road Warriors, him dangling from the top of a scaffold match. He was a part of so many rivalries, good matches with Jim Crockett promotions, and he didn't need to be great on the mic to be uh, just an impact performer back then. What would Jimmy have done if Bobby would have been a silver tongued devil? Yeah. They probably would not have got together. Bobby did not need to say a word. 
Ask me how many scaffold matches I've been in. How many? You know how many. Zero. Zero. Yes, sir. And for a good reason. You saw what happened to Jimmy. I don't think anybody that ever went into a scaffold match that everyone came back intact through the curtain. So they took them on. If there was a question as to any kind of match that you wanted to put the Midnight Express in, they were probably the best choice because they were veterans. They were safe. They knew what to do to tell the story of what a scaffold match is and the dangers, you know, and they just, they were so flawless of every, in everything they did physically and to have Jimmy paint the picture verbally as to what you just saw and put his slant on it. It was just a match made in heaven. And I can, you know, they knew it. And I could tell when they went to the ring, they enjoyed being together. They enjoyed going out and doing their story. And let me tell you them and the rock and roll express, just like I said, the midnight express are the best team I've ever seen. That's probably the best tag match I've ever seen. Mm. I've seen some damn good ones, been in some ba- some pretty damn good ones. But those guys, once they got that thing cooking, and at about the 30-minute mark, when they had Ricky Morton crawling around that ring begging for help, brother, you were borderline riot situation. And I don't care what town you were in, what day of the week it was, they could elicit more emotion. I wish I could take every young guy in this business and I'd like to sit in on this and watch front row myself and have those guys watch that match live today and just watch the crowd and watch what they pull. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Pulled out of them. The emotion they pulled out of them. Everything from grandmothers trying to come over the rail to kill Jimmy Guys throw in expensive beers, full expensive beers all over Jimmy because he was getting such heat on the floor and in the ring. My God, when Ricky Morton crawled over to that bottom rope because he couldn't get to Robert and he stuck stuck his hand out and said, somebody help me. Brother, people's kids started coming over the rail because it wasn't perceived at what, as what a puss. Those three guys with one with a weapon – being that tennis racket had about killed him. He was on his last leg and that audience did not think he was going to make that tag. How long has it been since you been in a live show or sitting in a living room where you actually thought this guy may not be able, he may not tag. This may be over without him tagging, which in today's world is absolutely unheard of. Right takes masters to do that. And one of those masters was Bobby Eaton because a key element 
is having that guy, that baby face that they want so badly to tag to almost get there. Not once, not twice, three, four times, maybe five times and get dragged back. And that's your drama. And that's where Bobby Eaton came in, painting that drama, letting the guy get almost there, almost there. Oh, he's a foot and a half away. Bobby would light him up with one of those punches, flat back him, whip him right back in the heel corner, and damn, they had to start all over again. I can see it. I can picture it right now. He was just so good at everything. He did not have a flaw in that ring. Arn, talk a little bit about how also it felt like the Midnight Express did not miss a beat, and I guess Bobby's impact of that when the move is made from Condry to Stan Lane. Dennis decided for whatever his reasoning was, he decided he did not want to be part of that group anymore. Went off the radar. They brought in Stan. Now, it immediately took a different look. Stan was a handsome guy, had like a karate style to him, more smooth, more polished than Dennis. He wasn't the thug that Dennis Condry was. All the girls loved him, which gave you a little bit of a different dichotomy because you got the girls cheering for Stan. You got them booing Bobby and booing Cornette, and this is all within one group. Now, I think they became something different because of that but they stayed in a position because Stan, you know, did have such a great athletic look and had brought that different style to it. It was fun to watch because it was oil and water. It wasn't Bobby and Dennis blending. It was those guys almost clashing, but it still worked. And they picked right up with the tag team moves. They, they had those, the move sets that were down uh, pat and, yep. and worked and flowed together. So it was almost still interchangeable in terms of the tag team wrestling, the chain wrestling, the chain moves that still worked. Now, when by the time this had occurred, just so you know about the personal life, Bobby and uh, myself had purchased homes one street apart. And uh, we were starting to raise families. Uh, we lived actually one street apart for 12 years. And I watched his kids grow up from just tiny, tiny. Uh, our firstborn, Barrett, was born right after we got our home in Charlotte. We actually were still in an apartment when he was born. But we brought him there and we started a Bobby Eaton community center in his garage, which meant if you got a day off, go to Bobby's garage door up, refrigerator door open, cold beers for everybody. And he had, you know, I, I couldn't figure out how he would always get drunker than me. And I figured it out. I caught him pulling those little bitty tiny liquor bottles of tequila out of his pecker pouch <laughs> And snipping around the corner and killing those things up. So he had a shot going out in the garage. Now, this is not a nightclub, but it was to us. He had some uh, music playing out there. I don't even remember who it was, but, man, we had some great times. 
And over those 12 years, we hooked up many a ride, going to many a town. And I just started to figure out because as I got close to his family with Donna, who God bless her, passed away not not very long ago. Uh, but I learned that, you know, the kids and Bobby was so great with, with my son when he came over and all the other kids in the neighborhood. You know, maybe this is a good place to to even put this, but Bobby had some quirks. One of those quirks were he had a bag, which was his, we called it a work bag, had wrestling gear and toiletries and knee pads and boots and tights and all that good stuff. But Bobby had a super unleaded bag. It was a ski bag that was probably, let me see, about four feet long and about two and a half feet wide. And it would hold, it hold a room full of furniture probably. So Bobby put in that particular bag, which he took to each and every town and it weighed, I would say 60 pounds, 12 pair of socks, five pair of tights, three pair of boots, at least three towels, had one section that he had nothing but penny candy, which cost two cents, by the way, back in those days. No such thing as penny candy. He had to have a sorted mix of probably had to be 15 pounds of penny candy. Now, this bag was loaded down. It was a hardware store. So the kids in the neighborhood, when they wanted candy, they didn't go to the store. Where did they go? Bobby's Garage. And go. Buddy, he would hook them up. Love it. Unzip the section that had the candies in and let them have at it. And as soon as they were done, back out of there, we would curtail some of the drinking while the kids were in the garage. And then we'd have back at it. The next day, he was right back down to the store to replenish his candy supply. So I just throw that in. And over the years, us grown up kids, when we got to a town and we forgot that we didn't pack socks or we didn't pack a, we didn't pack a towel or, or even sometimes we just go get a hit off of the penny candy. But Bobby had some of everything. He had three pair of tennis shoes in that bag and he's just going to a town, drive up, wrestle and drive back. I begged him. I said, Bobby, please just get one little work bag. That'll just get you up there and back. You're not even staying over. We'll get. He was ready, now, man. If you didn't know what I just said, neither did anyone yeah, else, no. but I knew. <laughs> you spoke Bobby. Bobby said, that's it. I spoke Bobby after a couple of years, I figured out how to translate and what he just said. Cause I like it like it is. Fuck it. <laughs> now, listen, you talk about how you moved down the street from him. Now, were you close friends already when that all occurred or just so happened to work out that way? No, it just was one of those deals. We both were staying in an apartment called the Berkshire apartments in Charlotte, which was nice. And it was kind of like the wives in those days, 335 days a year were wrestling. Mm. We didn't have time to do nothing. So when we took off every afternoon at 
two, three, four o'clock, whatever time it was to go to work every single day, they were apartment hunting the wives. And if one got a tip on a good deal, because none of us had lived in Charlotte, got word it. spread. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Okay. So then, you know, it's like Jimmy lived close to us. Uh, Bobby lived in that first apartment, the Berkshire. We were all right there close. Dennis was close. Then we found a neighborhood close to that, which was out on the edge of town. Um, and we found a neighborhood that was not old at all. The house that I bought, which was, it was very modest, three bedroom, two baths, had never had the uh, uh, fireplace even used. It was just a small house on a cul-de-sac and, uh, and a, out on kind of on the edge of town, very modest. And I lived there 12 years, lived one street over from Bobby. And once he found out, Donna found out that we had found that, she went through the neighborhood and found another one that close. It was just, it was just a circumstance. It was just luck, I guess, meant to be. Okay. So, and cause I love to ask the, the questions that really nobody, we can talk wrestling all day, but I love to learn about the person and relationships and how it all came together. So at that point, was he like, well, come on over Lundy's. We'd love to have you for dinner. Like how does the connection then continue to get closer where you're down in his garage eating penny candy and hanging out and having beers? Well, yes, yeah, since there was no days off, it yeah. would be like, you know, some of those trips, even though there are few and far between, it's like, Okay, we would go to uh, Rock Hill, 20 minutes, 25 minutes down the road. So if you were on early, let's just say it was summertime and you were on first, second, third match, whatever the case may be, you were allowed to leave when you were done. So if you were out of there by 8 o'clock, you were home by 8.20, it wasn't even dark yet. So that was a day if we were done. We can meet over at Bobby's and have some beers. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Sometimes on Sunday, you would have a matinee show. Afternoon, the night was clear. Still wasn't an off day by any stretch, but you did it in the afternoon. After that show was over, head over to Bobby's. And it was just, it was just a relaxing place. His neighbors became our neighbors and our neighbors became his neighbors. We had one of the greatest neighborhoods, especially those two street areas, you know, there are people that are still our friends today that live there. And it just, it made for, for a really good, good feeling to go on the road and know that you had people that were going to be there that could help keep an eye on your wife, your, your children, keep an eye on the house. Cause we weren't going to be back till two or three in the morning. And that, you know, those kind of friends are few and far between. Now, that's a very valid point. You figure, you know, as kind of the overseers of the house, you guys aren't home a lot. So you want to make sure too, that they're safe and you have people around that you can kind of count on. The, so that's a good, good point. And nobody was a better neighbor than Bobby. I mean, anything that you needed done, if you needed something moved and people do not realize just by looking at him, no one will ever realize unless he grabbed you, Bobby Eaton was cock strong. Yeah. And any man of my era can tell you exactly what that is. And I'll give you a couple of examples. I mean, he just, for a guy that looked absolutely normal, was not a body guy, was not big in stature, was probably six foot, maybe, maybe 225 pounds. 
But buddy, if you looked at his, if, you know, go back and look at, at maybe some steals or something. Look at the size of his hands. It looked like it belonged on a damn Cro-Magnon man or something. But Bobby was a claustrophobic and some people knew that and some didn't. And the ones that did know, no, excuse me, the ones that didn't know, like to mess with him a little bit. So if you came up behind Bobby as an example and reached around and put your hand over your mouth, over his mouth, uh, you better let go and be around the corner in about two seconds because you were fixing to get blown completely up. Right. Example, Rick Steiner and Sting at center stage and everybody loved Bobby. Now this is skipping ahead, but with the Crockett years and the WC, this was the WCW years and everybody loved Bobby that knew him. He was such a, he's the best human being. I think God has ever put on this earth in a number of reasons, but they tried to jam him back up in a corner. Now this is Rick Snyder staying. They got him in that corner and he was kind of going along with it. And Sting said, I'm going to kiss you and leaned in and man, they were trying to muscle their way in. They was going to kiss him on the cheek. Okay. Bobby Eaton sent those two grown ass men tumbling like you have never seen. No way in hell no way. were they holding him. And it was the claustrophobia that was flipping him out. So that was like a standing rib. We'd be going down the road. I'd be driving or something. I'd just reach over, put my hand over his mouth, and he just about knocked the roof off the car. Thank God he never hit me. So, Arn, listen, we can talk about Bobby and wrestling matches all day long, but I think what most of the listeners want to hear is more stories that you have like that of getting to know him at a deeper level and hear more of these stories. When you guys would visit, maybe hanging out in the garage, traveling around, uh, what are some other things that maybe you would talk about? You had families that were similar age. Did you have a lot of things in common? Did Bobby like sports? Did he like other things? Would you guys have, you know, what would you talk about? Was it always wrestling? Would you talk about what was going on? Was he happy with what he was doing, where he was on the card, working in tag teams? What was some of the other stuff that, that you guys would, would share and talk with each other about maybe? You know, that's a funny thing. We didn't talk much wrestling. Okay. We really didn't because we were in different matches, obviously. And, you know, I would always watch his match. And I think he always watched ours, especially if we were traveling together and he wasn't going to get out of there or me get out of there before him. But when we were traveling together, it was, you know, about 10 out of 10 times we would, you know, ice down a few cold beers and, and we would figure out some music that we liked and we'd go down the road and it would be just some random something he would bring up. And it wasn't about anything that had happened that day, or it would be more like, what do you think about this? And it would kind of come off the cuff and we'll be like, oh, hey, I just wonder what, what, what do you think about, what do you think about it? what do I think about who, what? <laughs> and he would say it again. And he would say pretty clearly, pretty clearly, which I wonder now if it was a work. He go, don't be, don't be a smart ass. <laughs> okay, Bob. <laughs> he uh, 
it was just one of those things. And I tell you what he loved more than anything. I, he was a sports fan, Okay. but it, it wouldn't be like he would come in the locker room and say, Hey, did you guys see this or that? Or did you hear about this happen or anything? He would sit down and watch it. And, and I think he would enjoy it. Uh, but the one thing he enjoyed more than anything on this earth, go figure is tennis shoes. Really? The man had a tennis shoe collection that you would not believe. And now he was a blue jean guy or in the day back then, you remember Zubaz? Yes. They were acceptable in any establishment on earth and man, the wrestlers wore them. I remember the road warriors always wearing them. Yeah, we all did. And it was like traveling in your pajamas. You could go through the airport, go in the arenas, literally in your pajamas. And Bobby had a hell of an assortment, but the tennis shoes back mm. in those days, I'll never forget it. Like the, the Jordans yes, and the top shelf stuff that came out. I mean, high tops, 125 bucks. Oh, now this is in the eighties, 85, 86, $135. And the first time he showed up in a pair of those, I said, damn, Bobby, those are nice. I'm a little tight where the tennis shoe thing goes. You know what I mean? I'm, I understand. A, rack, I'm a rack room 39.95 guy. Give me the Etonics. I'm good to go. <laughs> Those are my granddad's shoes. <laughs> Attaboy. Attaboy. I'm sure me and your granddad have similar tastes. <laughs> Bobby showed up in a pair of those. I went, damn, those are nice. What those cost? And he went, whoa, whoa, $135. Man, I almost wrecked. Yeah. How much? $135. And he looked at me and he go, problem? Is there a problem? I said, hey, you're the mark. Right. No problem with me. And man, he must have had over that time that I knew him, especially during those years where we're really doing good, the Crockett years and the, probably his first contract with uh, Turner. I bet he had 25 pair of tennis shoes okay. and high dollars. Yeah. You know, in today's world, man, he could wear those things a couple times on TV, turn around and make a mint, couldn't he? Absolutely. The way stuff, the way things go. But that was like his. That was his thing. That was his thing more than anything was, uh, he loved his, he loved his tennis shoes, man. And how many, uh, how many children did, did he have? He has two boys and a girl, uh, Dustin, Dylan, and Taryn. Okay. Taryn is in the middle. Saw them growing up. Matter of fact, when we first moved into the Berkshire apartments, doorbell rang. Went, looked out the peephole, didn't see anybody, didn't hear anybody. Started to walk away, ding, ding. Looked back through the peephole, still didn't see anybody. Okay, because you never knew in those days, you know, you're living in an apartment close to three or four different families that you didn't know, but they knew you and you were a heel back in those days. You know, does that make any sense? You never knew what to That's expect. Right. No, I, so, I, so I, makes total I opened, sense. I opened the door and there's Dustin, the oldest he's in a diaper. Now he's Bobby lived right around the corner. So he has left the, the apartment, came around the corner, went up one set of stairs and rung our doorbell. Cause he knew where we lived. 
little bit shocking. I grabbed Dustin by the hand, took him back down to back down to his place. I think he got his butt popped a little bit. That diaper got spunk a little bit. Yikes. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not even sure it was a diaper, but I think he would have been maybe like three years old or something. But, uh, that was one of those deals. I looked at Aaron then I went, this was going to be a wild one. <laughs> um, so we grew up and I got a chance to, you know, I'm, we got so many pictures laying over there on the table of mm. growing up with his kids and the evolution of the growth of his kids. 12 years is a long time. Absolutely. You know? And so, um, yeah, we got very, very close and, and Donna and the, you know, all the wives back then would go out and eat lunch or whatever the deal was. Cause we were gone all the time. And if they were going to have any life, they had to have a babysitter and go eat some lunch or do something or go visit or go have dinner or whatever it is they did, because if they didn't, you know, not much of a life in those days, because we certainly were on the road and we weren't much help. Well, Arn, uh, getting back to the wrestling a little bit, before you made your jettison to the WWF, you and Arn would lose your titles to the Midnight Express. I'm sorry, yes, you and Tully, apologize. You and Tully would drop your titles to the Midnight Express. Isn't that that right? Yep, and uh, you know what? That was an angle that was so well done by the company because they let Bobby and I do our thing and we were best friends and it became about my best friend wanting to take my money source which was my title and that is such an easy story to tell and such an easy story for the audience to grasp especially because they knew we were very good friends we were best friends and that angle when we popped it and we set it up for the first go around as far as matches, business took off. And business had been down a little bit at that point, and business took off. And uh, some things happened behind the scenes with the office, and uh, Tully and I, even though we're in the middle of this incredible angle and making the most money we had made since we had been there, still, there's a time in this business you have to go, nope not doing it. And, uh, this was one of those times. And for a number of reasons that had nothing to do with wrestling, the midnight express, because that would have went on with, for probably three, four months and drawn a ton of money. Um, but we decided that we needed to make a change. And I decided that I was going to have Bobby Eaton drop that leg on me from the top rope. And that was the way we're going to go out. And everyone agreed, and that's what we did. And we left a lot of money on the table and a lot of questions out of a lot of people that if you would have stayed, what if? Well, I've had that thought a time or two, but you do what you have to do at the time. And uh, I left some good people behind, some good friends behind, and a good company behind. I I did not want to leave, but we left. And one of the reasons I didn't want to leave is I didn't want to leave my friend. Sure. That's Bobby Eaton, and I knew in those days because WWF at that time was running so hard, and we were still running so hard that our paths were not going to cross. And uh, even though we still lived 
one street apart, that slowly went away because they're just, you come home, you got three days off. One's a travel day. One's the day to have with your family. The next day is to repack, head out on the road again. It's not much of a life. Hard to, to justify going to the garage in those situations. No, absolutely. You got to think two different companies, two different schedules, lots of life change that that would bring on. Eventually, though, you would come back to WCW. Bobby's still here. Uh, and in 90, 1990, I believe, there is no more Midnight Express. He's decided to stay with WCW, but go for uh, a singles run. Uh, is it almost an immediate reconnection for you and Bobby at this point once you make your way back into WCW? You bet. Stronger than ever. Good. Um, and, uh, you know, our paths, as far as business, we wrestled some matches for the TV title against each other. We became part of a group called the Dangerous Alliance. That's right. Which you remember. Yes, which you go back and look at the players and that. It's amazing that it doesn't get more airtime and conversations about that group of guys. Good Lord like an all-star team. It really is. When you go back and look at that group and, uh, how Haney, by the way, uh, this past week has done a tremendous job with some artwork that he's put out there to try to collect money for the Eaton family. So I did want to give him a shout out by the way. And it's a, a picture of the dangerous Alliance that he hand drew. And, uh, so I just want to put him over real quick, but touching on super brawl, the very first super brawl there, uh, Arn, you would wrestle Bobby Eaton, or the television championship, and he would win that belt from you. So what was it like going head-to-head -head for the TV title with Bobby? Well, hell, I knew it was going to be a great match because Bobby Eaton was in it. I could have had the flu with one broke leg and one arm and a cast, and he would have still had a great match. But as we're talking here, and I'm kind of recapping my history with him, that puts me at 0-2, don't it? I believe so. I don't have it in front of me, but I think you're right. Well, yeah. I mean, the Midnight Express, he beat, he beat me. Yeah. If we're going to count he beat that me one for sure. beat me team. for my yeah. TV title. Damn it. <laughs> I should have probably learned back then, leave him alone. Yeah. Don't mess he with got, beautiful Bobby. Aren't he got your number, man. Yeah. He got your number. It, uh, he, uh, he fed you all that penny candy, and then he would put you down on the ring. That was his trick. Yeah. <laughs> you don't know how – he's one of those guys that I put it this way, and he, he's in that he's in that realm with the, the Brad Armstrongs of mm. the world and, the, you know, uh, the Ricky Mortons of the world and the Shawn Michaels of the world and Ricky Steamboats of the world. He's in that group of guys. You really don't understand how good he is until you're in the ring with him. Yeah. And he's just everywhere he needs to be at the right time. He accelerates when he needs to. He pumps the gas and the brakes when he needs to. And he's just, his instincts in that ring are just, and he's so smooth. But man, he was, you know, when he hit an offensive, name it, you could feel it out in the audience that it just jarred your teeth. He just had so much impact with his offense. He was uh, he was one of those rare guys that everything he did was flawless. Arn, listen to uh, this this match lineup in 1991 for Bobby Eaton. 
It's it's you and him super brawl for the television title. He wins. Okay, no, not trying to run salt salt in the moon. We talked about you're that. enjoying this. Come on. <laughs> then it's he gets to face Ric Flair, world heavyweight champion, at the Clash of the Champions 15 in a two out of three falls match. Eaton would pin Flair in the first fall, but ultimately he lost to Flair uh, two falls to one. So that's a big time match. Two out of three against the world champ, Hell and then yes. and then he would lose his TV championship. To newcomer, stunning Steve Austin, uh, who leveraged his manager in Eaton's tights to get the pinfall victory. So there you go. Arn, Ric Flair, two out of three, and then losing the TV title to Stone, well, eventually Stone Cold Steve Austin, but it's stunning Steve Austin here in 91. Oh, that guy will never get over. What the Yeah, hell? who's he? Stu- stunning who? Yeah. Pretty good lineup. And you know what? And each and every match, Bobby Eaton was at least as good as anybody in the match, if yeah. not the best guy in the match. Just ask Steve Austin about Bobby Eaton now, and, and he'll he'll give you an earful about what he thought about him as a man and as a wrestler. Yeah, and you know what? You just said it, <clears throat> as a man. And, uh, you know, the thing I, I wanted to get across today, and maybe it has – it's just how much I love Bobby Eaton as a human being. And he was very close to being my brother, my, you know, about as close as you can get, I guess, and not being blood. He just was so kind to everybody. If, uh, if you saw a homeless person on the side of the road, you better be prepared to stop or Bobby was going to be pissed because he was going to empty his wallet out for whoever it was. And that's the kind of guy he was, uh, you know, it, there's nothing he wouldn't do for anybody. Uh, I don't have enough adjectives to, to truly cover just what a kind, kind man he was. And, uh, very few people in this business because it tends to make you a little jaded you know, you're tired from travel a lot of times and you're probably not as nice to people as you should be. You know, there's a lot of excuses and a lot of reasons that we give for the way, the way things end up being. When I never saw Bobby short with anybody that wanted an autograph, short with anybody that wanted to have a short conversation. And if they had kids, he was on one knee, patting them on the head and talking to them and finding candy. Mm. and uh, they just don't make people like Bobby. Uh, there will never be another one. He was the purest of heart of any human being I have ever met, and I've met some some pretty good people along the way, too, and uh, that's the point I wanted to get across today, more so than anything, and uh, the career that he had, you can ask anybody that came from that era, you know, who was, who was the best, or if not, who was one of the top three or top two that you ever saw or in the ring with? And Bobby Eaton's name will always come up and uh, universally. And um, I guess I'm just feel so fortunate to have known him at all, to have shared the time that I get to share with him. And uh That's yeah. That's it. Well, Arn, closing through as we walk through the the uh, remaining of his of his wrestling chapter to your 
point earlier, he would uh, be a part of the Dangerous Alliance. You were obviously part of that faction with him. As you said, one of the most, for all of us now, nostalgic wrestling fans, uh, long live that group, amazing talent. He would then take a tour through Smoky Mountain Wrestling, again, part of Cornette. He worked with Stan Lane and Tom Pritchard, uh, part of the Heavenly Bodies there and that kind of that group. Um, and and uh, that was a lot of fun. He did some New Japan work as well. Came back to WCW where he would become Earl Robert Eaton. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's a little bit of fun there if you think about that character, right? Oh, him and, him and Regal were great. Yeah, the Blue Re- Regal tried. Regal, Regal tried to teach Bobby <laughs> table manners. <laughs> it was worth the price of admission every day of the week. Oh. And they were a good team too, man. They did, really were. Did he ever make any kind of side comments about what am I doing? Or did he just have fun with it and go with it? No, you know what? He just enjoyed it. He was joy and tagging with uh, Regal. And uh, if he would have said something, nobody knowed what he's talking about anyway. Yeah. He, uh, he would end up going to train some wrestlers at the power plant for a short time too. So left leaving his, imp- his fingerprints, if you will, uh, on the business in that regard too. So he did a little bit of that between 96 and 2000, um, before kind of wrapping up, uh, his career through the end there. Uh, but as you said, Mary to Bill Dundee's daughter, Donna, who unfortunately, uh, we lost earlier this year, obviously Arn, from what you're sharing, uh, you guys were all close as families. Uh, you know, there for a long time too. So definitely a, a difficult year for, uh, for the Eaton family. Yeah. I don't know how it gets any worse. And, you know, they, they say that people have been married for a long time or been together for a very long time. When one goes, the other one pretty much grieves himself to death. You know, I believe that, uh, you know, they took care of each other and they were both in less than stellar health, but man, they took care of each other and they looked after each other and until, you know, till the very end of their lives. And, uh, that's just who Bobby was. And, and, uh, you know, for those kids, I can't say enough about the loss that they've had. I can't do it justice. I can't put enough shed enough light on it i just my heart goes out to them and uh i hope they know that they had wonderful parents and that their dad was a mega star Mm. not only in this business but in life and uh that's a fact well arn thank you so much for opening your heart and sharing with you with all of us not only from some uh, fun stories from the road, but also some personal stories of uh, the life of Bobby Eaton and what he's meant to you, not only you, but your family and uh, the impact that he's made. In closing, as we wrap this up, is there anything else that you can think of or might want to share with the listeners of The Arn Show about uh, Bobby uh, as we begin to uh, wind down this episode? Well, I stumbled through this one. This one is just one that I knew I was not going to do a stellar job with, but I hope to God everyone just understands. And probably most people have had other sources and have followed our business and talked to different people. They all knew before we did this. I just wanted to pay tribute to Bobby Eaton, my friend. God bless him and God bless his family. Thank you for listening to this edition of The Arn Show, and may Bobby Eaton 
Rest in peace. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.